I do think that that one of the biggest challenges that we as a medical community face is the struggle against disinformation. That there yeah, are a lot of people out there who are trying to get rich off of patients' pain and suffering. And um, there are a lot of people who are trying to get rich off physicians, too. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the free open access medical education community is a very important tool in fighting that disinformation. Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and we are back, Season 2 of Hills and Valleys, and we have a fantastic season full of incredibly inspiring talks and interviews with physicians, nurses, uh, healthcare investors, and innovators. But before we jump into the interview, you just heard a clip with Dr. Chris Carroll. I wanted to give a quick reminder to everyone of an initiative that Petrero Medical is doing. Now, uh, Petrero, we are a small startup uh, out here in Silicon Valley. We're a U.S.-based company. And so we decided that we need to do everything that we can to help with the COVID-19 crisis. We've sent all our gloves and sanitation supplies to local hospitals. But we also realized that a lot of physicians were uh, needing some help when it comes to fluid management with their COVID patients. So we decided to join the fight and provide as many accurate monitoring systems as possible to hospitals with COVID-19 patients free of charge as loaners uh, for what is legally allowed in the U.S., which is up to 90 days. Um, The monitors are being loaned to hospitals and clinicians are using them more specifically because we are able to automate urine output, you get interabdominal pressure at a press of a button, and of course you get core body temperature. And this has been helpful, at least from what we've heard, uh, in terms of informing fluid management decisions for these types of patients. So if you're a clinician and right now you need help with this, go to potreromed.com forward slash COVID-19 help. That's potreromed, P-O-T-R-E-R-O-M-E-D.com forward slash COVID-19 help. I'll leave the link below in the show, show notes. Fill out the form and our team will follow up with you as quickly as possible. So for all the clinicians out there, the doctors and nurses, the healthcare workers who are putting their lives at risk, fighting day and night to make sure that we flatten the curve here in America, we thank you. And of course, for everyone else in the globe, in countries that have been affected, doing what they can to help the entire world as we fight this together, uh, we thank you all and our hearts and prayers go out to you. So with that said, let's get into the interview. So Dr. Carroll is a very active and productive researcher and administrator, as well as educator and clinician at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. His primary focus is to examine the relationship between a child's genetics and the development of disease, particularly bronchitis and severe asthma. But we interviewed him on this episode specifically because he has such a strong presence for advocating for the use of social media by healthcare professionals and families. He's recognized as a uh, big leader in this area uh, as he was the chair of social media uh, work group at CHEST and also the social media committee for Society of Critical Care Medicine. You can follow him on Twitter at his Twitter handle 
at Chris Carroll MD. That's C H R I S C A R R O L L M D. And I'll leave that in the show notes. Now, Dr. Carroll is very active in leadership in several national and international groups, such as the American College of Chest Physicians, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the American Thoracic Society, and the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network. And he also serves as the associate editor of the Chest Journal and chair of the New Media Work Group for Chest. So, Really inspiring interview, fantastic way to kick off 2020. We hope you enjoy it. And here is our interview with Dr. Chris Carroll. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth at Petro Medical, and we are here at the CHESS 2019 conference in wonderful New Orleans. Uh, it was rainy yesterday, but it's definitely a lot more warmer and definitely muggier today. And we're fortunate enough to catch up with Dr. Christopher Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to finally, like, you know, see you in person because we, we've been following you online. You put out wonderful tweets and Thank a lot you. of great content. Yeah, it's always nice to see people in person after interacting with them online for so long. Although I'm a big believer that online friends can be real friends too. But yeah, yeah no, it's same nice to here. finally meet you in real life. I know, absolutely. It's been it's been fun. So you know, just for the audience, you know, I'm, I, I need to ask, you know, what. What, where are you from? Where, where, where'd yeah. you grow up? So uh, I am originally from Connecticut. Um, I grew up uh, there. Um, I moved to D.C. to do my college and medical school at Georgetown. And then I moved to Chicago and lived there for a few years doing my residency and fellowship in first in pediatrics and then in critical care. And then I moved back to Connecticut and I've been there ever since for the last 17 years. And I'm um, currently a professor of pediatrics at the University of Connecticut. Very nice. Now, what, what got you interested to uh, go into medicine? So, um, you know, I, I went into medicine for very, what sound like altruistic reasons now, that I wanted to help people. I think that, um, I think that most people go into medicine because they want to help people. I think if you go into medicine for other reasons, you're probably not going to be in the field for very long um, because it is a very hard job. It's uh, challenging to, to take care of patients, and I'm a, a pediatric critical care physician. That means I see kids who are in an intensive care unit, so kids who are very sick, um, uh, parents who are very distressed. So if you're not going into it for the right reasons um, to help people, you're not going to last in an environment like that very long. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when you were uh, doing your residency and fellowship, did you have any, um, any mentors, you know, that you know, sort of really inspired the way you, you practice medicine? I, I think that um, as you're learning to practice, you pick up the best things from each of them. There are people I learned good things from in each of the different um, disciplines. I can say, for example, I learned, I learned how to talk to patients from um, a, uh, a pediatric oncologist who uh, really was gave me a tremendous advice as a, as a medical student. I learned how to analyze things from another physician who was a... Um, was a pediatric nephrologist. So, you know, you pick things up from different people, and I think that that's the job of a trainee is to pick up what they like from different people and develop their own style and to, um, you know, lack of a better word, steal things from people. Um, no, absolutely. Actually, I, I, I like that idea because, uh, you know, growing up, you know, you, you always want to have, like, this, like, sort of sage mentor that grooms you, but sometimes you don't get that. No, I know, don't think, I think right? that, I think that's a great point. I, I, I don't think that there's, for most of us, a one sage mentor who grooms us into that person. I think we pick up things from little 
vignettes at little times. And I think um, certainly I have a lot of people who I look to as mentors of mine, and I have a lot of people that I mentor, but I know they have lots of other mentors. It really does take a, a village of, of people to, um, to raise a young physician. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, that's a good, good kind of uh, segue. You know, I have to say, um, you know, for me, having a medical background, I actually, so I was in uh, medical school at one point in my life and decided I really wanted to go into technology. And so as somebody who does marketing, I really admire physicians who do marketing really well because it, it's a way of acting out what you believe to be true and it inspires the, you know, the people who are below you, who are, who are your students, to start doing the same thing. So your, your presence online is fantastic. Tell, well, how, did you, you. how did you get into that? Thank you for, um, for the compliment. I, I do think that um, marketing is important. I think that, uh, that I, I view it as an extension of education, uh, mm -hmm. medical education. Um, you're educating people just in a different place online. Um, you, know, you have to change your perception of what, who your audience is. Um, you know, I got into, uh, into the, the social media world um, quite by accident in 2011, I think it was, when um, some of these things were new. Um, I was at a conference, uh, I was at a chess conference here, and um, uh, there, uh, there was a meeting where uh, there were they were talking about social media and the facilitator said how many people here have a Facebook account and a few people raised their hands including me said how many of you have checked it in the last month and a few people had their hand I think I was the only one with my hand up at this point how many people in the last week people had their hand up and I said I'll stop you right there I've checked it twice since you started talking um, and uh, and after that they um, when they were looking for people to launch this new initiative which started out in the chess journal they contacted me and said, would you be interested in helping develop our social media presence? So the very first time I went to Chest um, and did social media, I think was either in 2011 or 2012, and um, I remember going, looking back at those tweets now, they seem very uh, uh, unformed, and, uh, but it was very new and there weren't a lot of people doing this at this point. And uh, I was very happy with my 100 followers when I left the meeting. And then uh, a few months later, I went to the Society of Critical Care Medicines meeting. There were a few other people there who were also interested in Twitter, and we started tweeting. Um, we had talked to the SCCM people, and they had said, yeah, let's use this as our hashtag. But uh, there was even some debate about which hashtag to use. <laughs> it's always and, fun when that uh, happens. <laughs> yeah, and if you look back now at, the, at, that, at that originally Society of Critical Care Medicine conference and see what hashtags were used there, there were a lot of mistaken hashtags. There were, uh, they, you know, because hashtags are kind of a fluid thing. Um, but then just started going from there, and I got very involved in, SEC, in social media for the three major um, pulmonary and critical care societies um, in, uh, in the U.S., American Thoracic Society, uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine, and uh, CHEST, and um, quickly realized that CHEST was the one I wanted to focus my time on. I just uh, loved the community here. I found them incredibly supportive of any silly idea that we came up with um, to try to do online, um, and it really was, for me, uh, was the home of real medical educators, so I felt it was the best fit for social media. Absolutely, yeah, and I def you definitely feel that at this conference. I mean, I've been to a lot of conferences in my in my career, but you know, what I love about this conference is that there's this uh, genuine excitement. 
you know, by the people who are attending there. And you can definitely get a feel for that online. Yes. You know, and I, and what I love is, I mean, so uh, one example is a doctor, and I, you, I, in, I found this physician through you. Yeah. Uh, you tagged Dr. Dina Khatib. Yes. Right. And so when I saw that, you know, so for me, it's rare to find another person with a last name Khatib spelled the same way as me. So I, I tweeted. I know. Yeah. yeah. So I tweeted her. I was like, I was like, I was like, I think we're related. And she, she replied back with a gift like, Are we fam? You know. Like, <laughs> so and it, it's so nice. You know, Twitter could be a very toxic place, but the medical community on there is wonderful because you have physicians. Physicians have great senses of humor, yes. but but combining that with this environment to to you know have fun and, and, and joke around, but also be serious and and share the knowledge you know yes. and the wisdom of medicine because so much of it becomes obsolete when you leave uh, training. Yeah, it's just a wonderful way to learn. It's a wonderful way to continue learning. Yeah, I think we all we all learn online, and you know what is really interesting to me is. I have started looking academically at how these different communities interact because, um, you know, the, the medical Twitter is not a, a monolith. There are different communities in there. You know, um, there's the nephrology community. Uh, the those ones are wild. Yeah. And they have a very <laughs> strong community and put out a lot of great knowledge. There is... Um, uh, you know, there are, there's cancer communities. There's lung cancer social media. There's a breast cancer community. Um, there are um, OBGYN communities. There are lots of different communities out there. And we frequently will overlap and interact because we know each other, um, uh, at least from online. And we consider each other friends, at least from online. Back to online friends are real friends, too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But uh, the, uh, the, the community, I would agree, is very positive and supporting. And uh, it's... Uh, it's it's a good place. Well, see, and it makes sense now. It's funny because it's we, we the world really is a lot smaller than we realize. Because I remember following you and seeing the chess community. I'm like, wow, they have a great online community, just like the nephrologists. And and we we had Joel Toff on the on the show just a, about a few weeks ago. And, we, and the nephrologists have a fantastic. So it makes sense, of course, that you, ha, that you we have know a each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, of course that makes sense. Well, a lot of us old dinosaurs have been on for a while. I was um, <laughs> like Joel and I have been on for a long time. And I was reminiscing um, just this morning with somebody, uh, Esther Chu, who you probably know, who is super oh, yeah. famous now. Yeah, um, yeah. Esther and I wrote a paper together with a ton of other people who are also very famous. But at the time, Esther was the Esther was the first author, was the junior author, and I was the senior author on the paper. We submitted a paper to medical teacher in 2014, I think, about um, about why people should be on Twitter, why why physicians should be on Twitter. And at the time, that was something that you could get published because so many people were not on Twitter. Um, but it is there are there are lots of us who have been around for a while who know each other from those early days that you might not realize there are even connections between us. So, what are some of the like exciting ways, uh, or, or I guess new things that that the chess community on on Twitter is doing now? Well, we've really um, started to embrace uh, providing online education. Uh, the um, I'm a, a big believer in uh, as much free, open access medical education as possible. And I say that despite the fact that I wear a hat with the journal as, as a deputy editor of web and multimedia, where we mm. can't just give everything away. But I do think that, that one of the biggest challenges that we as a medical community face is the struggle against disinformation that there yeah, are a lot of people out there who are trying to get rich off of patients' pain and suffering. And um, there are a lot of people who are trying to get rich off physicians, too. And mm -hmm. so um, 
you know, the free open access medical education community is a very important tool in fighting that disinformation fight. Absolutely. And um, medical societies also are obligated to play a role in fighting that fight against disinformation. Absolutely. And I think that one of the benefits that medical societies have is that we provide peer-reviewed content um, and can peer-review our, our education that we have out there. Some of, um, some of the great work that's been done by Teresa Chan um, and the metric group um, looking at uh, quality of, of uh, online educational content has really been spectacular in trying to quantify that. Uh, and that's something that medical societies are trying to do now too. And CHEST is developing, now we're developing educational infographics, developing um, educational bite-sized pieces of information where clinicians can get just-in-time learning for that particular area. You know, say you have, um, uh, say you have somebody who is, uh, uh, someone asks you about um, blood transfusions, the latest literature about blood transfusions. You can go to the CHESS site, find out information about that, get links to the key articles, summaries of those key articles and you will have that right at your fingertips. Say someone wants a, uh, just a short infographic about vaping associated lung injury. They can mm. go to the chest mm -hmm. site, see a quick little infographic, get the basics of that, as well as get more information if they need to, find a link to more information. So, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of things to try to provide this medical education online for uh, the public uh, and for our members. Yeah, and see, that's the best thing about this is that you don't have to be a physician to be part of this. You know, no. I think I've told so many of my peers uh, in the industry, you can learn so much just by going and watching the conversations with physicians on Twitter, and, and you can interact as well. Yeah. And I think what's amazing about this, if you think of medical education, is that historically you wait, you know, once a year, a full year, to go to the conference, have the discussion with your peers, and then you disperse. But now it's happening in real time. So, like for example. The, the issue with when it comes to vaping, right, and the, the indications, because you're gonna have patients that are dealing with that. That's moving fast. Very fast, and and what I love is, what's the effect that this is gonna have on medical education and clinical practice mm -hmm. long term, because you're essentially crowdsourcing all these minds and, and, and mm -hmm. opinions all onto these singular topics. I, yeah, I don't, right? no, I don't know the answer to that. It's one of those huge macro trends that we're gonna see the, the answer to uh, over time. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you, so, you know, here at CHESS 2019, you, you know, we're here at day two. What are some things that you've seen um, in, in the sessions and, and, and maybe in the exhibit hall? Anything that stuck out to you? Any topics that were interesting? So one of the big topics that I've seen several sessions on is um, ICU outcomes and post-ICU care. There's a tremendous amount of evidence now that even after we've gotten someone out of the ICU and better, so even among ICU survivors, mm -hmm. a year later, many of them continue to have significant morbidity, and a year after surviving an ICU course, one in five patients will die of something. Um, yeah. So uh, how do we make those patients better? How do, we, how do we serve those patients better? Because I think if you asked people, Sure, they want to be alive at the end of 90 days, but they also want to go back to their jobs. They want to go back to their families. They mm -hmm. want to be able to do what they were normally doing. And I think that we are not getting them there enough. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of discussion on how to improve post-ICU outcomes by changing what we do in the ICU. Um, 
in the historically in the last few years, we have tried to have IC, post ICU clinics, so see patients in a clinic and help them along. That doesn't seem to be enough. We need mm -hmm. to look at what we're doing to them in the ICU. So there's a lot of um, uh, attention paid on reducing delirium, for example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, delirium comes in two types, hyperactive delirium, which I think everyone would recognize where patients are, are very agitated and upset, but there's also hypoactive delirium. Huh. And most of the delirium that we see is actually not hyperactive where they're agitated, but either mixed or hypoactive where patients are laying there. They're not hurting themselves, they're not pulling out lines, but they are they are delirious, they're hypoactive delir delirious. Mm. So how do we treat that? One of the ways we treat that is by trying to make their ICU environment as much like a non-hospital environment as possible, promoting sleep, getting them up, promoting mobility. You know, you can walk patients who are intubated now. Um, mm. You can walk patients on ECMO. Um, mm. You know, and, and that's uh, can be a little more challenging in the PEDS ICU setting that I'm that I practice in. But still, we get patients uh, up in strollers and walk them around, even who have on ventilators. We get patients outside who are on ventilators. Um, uh, Sapna, um, uh, who works at uh, at Johns Hopkins, and uh, Dale Needham, who works there, they do a lot of work on uh, a project called Pick You Up. Where um, oh, I where like they, that. Uh, That's a nice acronym. Move them up. Yes, it's <laughs> yeah. a great acronym. Pick you up. Where That's they the moving patients and getting them up and out of bed uh, really helps. One and of the things pediatric we did, ICU. The pediatric okay, ICU. Okay, got it. Yeah. One yeah, of the okay. things that we did um, is you know we got alarm clocks for everyone in the room. We have you know there there are clocks, but we also got an alarm clock in there, huh. and we got different types of curtains so that we can make it dark at night. Uh, and we have stopped doing baths and chest x-rays and care between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m. You know, yeah. traditionally in the hospital, people get chest x-rays at 5 a.m. It's not yeah, you're necessarily waking helpful. Up. You're waking them up. Yeah. And, yeah, and I'm sure, like, you know, if you mess up somebody's sleep cycle, I mean, that has an effect in terms yeah. of the stress and everything of, their, of, yeah. of how they're going to, you know, recover. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think hospitals are notorious for not letting patients get rest and I think we can change that. No, absolutely. And I think I mean I'm sure you remember this from from training that you know how many times you have to go and wake a patient up to see if they you know passed urine or have had oh, a yeah. bowel movement, yeah, right? Yeah. And nobody wants to get woken nobody up in the middle of life, yes. especially for something like that. I do will answer that question sometimes to inexperienced nurses. This patient hasn't peed in six hours. It's okay, well when I sleep I don't get up and pee in the middle of the night either. Yeah no exactly so. <laughs> yeah so that's so that, <laughs> that's good. That's all right. Yeah. Call me again in a few hours. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I liked about chess is that, you know, there's there's a nice, uh, uh, I guess, combination of disciplines here. Yeah. So one of the things that that I know that uh, so my uh, uh, our VP of product Jeff Alvarez and I we attended a couple of sessions like for acute kidney injury and saw yeah. the impact of like fluid management. You yes. know, for for these type of patients, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the uh, there are a lot of different disciplines here. There are. Uh, certainly different disciplines of clinicians. There are sleep uh, providers here, there are critical care physicians, there are neurocritical care physicians, there are um, uh, just straightforward critical care physicians, also pulmonologists, uh, interventional pulmonologists, uh, people who focus on ultrasound. And then beyond that, there's respiratory therapists, there's nurses, um, there are advanced practice providers, um, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, physician's assistants. There's a lot of different people here. It's a, it's a nice community. I think that we practice as a team, mm -hmm. so uh, it's important that we train as a team, too, and learn as a team. 
Got it, got it. Now I understand, um, you know, so right after this interview, you have to go set up a poster. So what, 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 what's your poster on? So um, I've been publishing a lot on, on some of the things we've talked about, how people online are communicating. So um, I have uh, a poster on, on conversations regarding asthma. Uh, this is a, a, a study I got a grant for to look at um, at how people are talking about asthma on Twitter, mm. and it's probably not surprising to anyone that patients and clinicians and industry and organizations will frequently have conversations that don't really involve each other, that they don't really overlap. Um, so uh, that was something that we showed in our paper, um, which is nice, and we're working on sending that away uh, for publication. Then we also looked at conversations regarding burnout online, and we found frequently that conversations involving burnout involved discussions of the electronic health record, which is also probably not surprising to anyone um, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, conversations involve the electronic health record. Now, you know, there's an interesting uh, analogy. There's a, a, a physician, Dr. Atul Bute, yep. who's out of UCSF. Yes, yeah, so yep. again, another, another notorious yep. uh, everybody uh, knows physician everybody Twitter. Online, yeah. Yes. But he had a, a, a nice saying where he said that usually uh, what happens is that you have the payer, provider, and industry, right? All three of them in a circle. And two of those three get together and gang up on the other one. And all these things happen with a patient on the outside with no one paying attention to them. And so what you just, you're describing in your poster is bringing everybody together. What's the best way to sort of bring all those, you know, those three uh, communities I just mentioned plus the patients together to have these sort of uh, open di dialogues online? Yeah, Where does I, that's that start? A tough, that's a tough conversation. I think, um, uh, I think the first step is, real, is realizing how they're different, that they are different. How, ways to get them to communicate better? Not entirely sure. There are different communities that have done that better than other communities. For example, the lung cancer social media community was started by a woman who, um, whose mother had lung cancer and she wanted to increase the advocacy for lung cancer online. And so she started the lung cancer social media hashtag and Twitter chat and then recruited physicians to join her in that um, program. So uh, that was quite a, a, a thing, and now it's very popular. I don't even know if she's particularly involved anymore, but it's run by two physicians. Um, so it was started originally by a patient um, or a family member of a patient. And what, you know, I mean, one of the things that we're always looking to do as an industry is find ways to be better. So what's, you know, if you can, you know, a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast. What would your message be to uh, those in the industry in terms of what they can do to sort of help contribute and, and improve, you know, these sort of initiatives? Well, I think industry is doing a lot of really good things online already. They are, when I look, I can look at the, the asthma community and I can see that for asthma, they are putting out a lot of great content, particularly during asthma awareness months and during the spring and fall. So I think industry should keep pushing things to help educate patients and clinicians on, online. I think that that is something that they are doing. And industry does have an outside, outsized presence online because uh, they have uh, more followers. They generally do better in terms of producing graphics than some of the clinicians do. Uh, so I would say just keep doing that putting out good graphics, putting out um, good resources for patients and for clinicians. Uh, I think that's probably the best way that industry can help with some of these different clinical Absolutely. disease states. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that I tell my peers and, and other companies is that, you know, 
uh, human beings do very well when, when it comes to encouraging. I'm sure you see that with your patients. And so a lot of times I think the best thing that we can do as an industry, at least I try and do that myself, is when I know phys- new physicians who come online and tweet, like, it, you know, it helps that when you tweet something out that you know somebody's there, you know, yes. pay attention and listen. So just going and like harding or retweeting a tweet or engaging yes. like really helps. There's a couple of physicians who I know came online, uh, cardiothoracic physicians, just the last couple months, and I went and you know tried to make sure that myself or f- other friends we engage. And now they're tweeting all the time. They're coming up with wonderful content and a yes. lot of stuff that um, helped me in my job. You know, so yeah. it's one of those things that I think it really benefits a lot, and I love that it's breaking down these silos. You know, yeah. so. I can hear this wonderful uh, New Orleans jazz coming on. So as we wind down, I do, I do have a couple rapid-fire questions yes, for you please. before we wrap up. I know you have to get to your, um, uh, to your poster. So you can take as long as you want to answer okay. these or as short as you want. Right? So my first question to you is, what's the most memorable thing a mentor ever told you? Um, I will... Uh, I will say that uh, um, the uh, the most uh, memorable thing a mentor had told me is um, that it's okay to say no. I'm still not very good at that. That is a struggle I have all the time. That uh, is okay to say no to new jobs, new careers, new things. Um, but I, I'm not good at that. I'm not great at setting boundaries and saying no, that I, I can't take this on. But it's something I strive for. Got it. I'm glad you didn't say no to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, no. If, if, See, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. But no, but this is a good thing they said yes to, though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't be here. What um, if you? Let's just say that uh, at the next chest meeting, yeah, right, or not even chest. Let's just say that uh, we had a magic wand, yeah, and every single uh, chest physician throughout the world, yeah, right, on their way to work, they're going to see a billboard, and it's, they're going to see this billboard every day for a year. Okay, what would you put on that billboard? Well, I'm going to have trouble coming up with something pithy, but I'll tell you the um, I'll tell you the theme that I would generally want to do there is, um, you know, I think that uh, oh, I'll tell you what I would want on the billboard. This is an even better answer to that. So, about a year and a half ago, at a recommendation of a friend online who I've never met, but a friend, um, uh, I changed from asking patients, "Do you have any questions?" So what questions do you have? And that has been a life-changing change for me. The quality of the answers I get are dramatically different. That's a great So saying one. what questions do you have and stopping, facing them, looking them in the eye, what questions do you have? That is, a, that is an open-ended question. Like, I have all the time in the world to answer any question you have for me. If I say, any questions, it means I'm like, hey, I'm just wrapping up. Any questions? No? Okay, bye. Um, but any questions, I would rarely get, a, get an answer. And I'd probably switch back and forth between any and what. Now I say what all the time. That's a great one. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to use that when I interview it's people. Life, it's life-changing. It <laughs> yeah, is. That's yeah. a really good one. Okay, so last question before we wrap up. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, uh, medical students and a lot of physicians who listen to this podcast who lo- love to read. Um, is there a book that you most often gift to other people or you, you always recommend? Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of, um, of great books out there. Um, the, uh, the uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a lung doctor, I um, frequently refer people to uh, West's Pathophysiology, but I think as a... Um, as a clinician, 
um, who uh, wants to help patients here. Um, or you're going to have to forgive me while I look up the name of the no, book. No, no, that's okay. Um, no, no, the, no. Uh, because I want to say it right. Um, the, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the textbook I frequently will recommend is, um, is, uh, is West Pulmonary Fast Physiology. But the book I want you to get um, is uh, a book by uh, Rana Audewish. Uh, you've probably heard this book, the In Shock book. It's, uh, I'm sure people have read it. It's her book about her experience about being a patient in her own intensive care unit. Oh, and it's called In Shock. In Shock, yeah. Interesting. And no, I, I heard that. highly recommend that book, and it is great, um, and she is great. Uh, she's a nice person online. She'll interact with anybody online and say nice very things cool. to you. But she's also wrote a very powerful and moving book about what it is like to be for a healthcare provider to be suddenly a patient in their own intensive care unit. You know, uh, my, my father's physician, and I, he, he once told me, he's like, the, wor- uh, w- the worst nightmare for any doctor is to become a patient. Yeah, so, especially okay. in their own ICU. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yes. So we'll have to check that out. Yes. Well, Dr. Carroll, hey, thanks so much. This has been really enlightening and fun. Where can people find, uh, uh, you, find can you find online? me on Twitter at Chris Carroll MD, uh, C A R R O L L M D, and uh, yeah, you can find me online there. I'm happy to talk to you. Awesome, and for the people uh, listening right now, you can check out the hashtag hashtag Chest 2019 to check out all the amazing content that's generated this conference. If you couldn't attend live, and of course, like make sure to follow uh, Dr. Carroll. Great. So, hey, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure having this conversation. I Absolutely. really appreciate you guys inviting me. Thank you. It's been fun. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.